So we have an issue right now that is killing 50,000 people a year. And, and that thing that is killing 50,000 people a year crosses all socioeconomic borders and boundaries, and it is impacting communities all across the United States. What, what is this issue that we're talking about? The American pandemic, as I see it, as we see it, is not only the opioid crisis, but this love affair that our country has with a failed war on drugs, which is really a war on people. So I want to bring you a fresh approach of what does drug policy look like? What are the the details that go into whether it be treatment, whether it be recovery, whether it be peer support? How are we battling this thing? What is the history of how we got here? And, and how are we going to move past it? And I hope that with this podcast that I will be able to bring some of the country's top thinkers to the table to have conversations about how we're going to do that. There's a lot of great work being done out in the community, and I want to hear those stories. I want to hear those vantage points, um, because until we start having a community conversation that engages every single person, um, we're not going to be effective in ending this thing. This week, I have as my guest Percy Menzies, who is the president of ARCA, the Assisted Recovery Centers of America. I am proud to know him. I am proud to work with him. And I invited Percy to have a conversation about the work that he's done, why he got started in this work, and I wanted to hear some of his thoughts regarding um, the current state of affairs when it comes to um, treatment for substance use disorder and the opioid use um, disorders and the crisis. Um, Percy brings a plethora of knowledge and experiences to the table. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I hope, hope you enjoy the conversation today. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, at Aaron Laxton. Please feel free to share this podcast as we learn more about the American pandemic. I came as an immigrant almost 42 years ago. Didn't know, knew very little about addiction. I started working for this small company whose claim to fame was developing two amazing medications. One was called Narcan or Naloxone, which is now used everywhere. It's an old drug. The second was Naltrexone. And over a period of time, I realized that this is the field that I have to be in. It was my destiny. I cannot explain why. But it was like, just was just pulling me to come into this field. And 21 years ago, I said, this is okay. I answered the call. And here I am, uh, I think I have made some uh, impact on the field. Some people think what I'm doing is controversial, but I'm focused more on the results. 
and how we are getting people well. So I'm just honored that you invited me to speak today. We have to bring all these debts to an end. So you mentioned a little bit about that. And I, you know, as we were thinking about formulating this, we really wanted to talk a, about a broad spectrum. And the one thing that's always struck me about, uh, you're a pharmacist by trade. Uh, and so you have an intense knowledge around the uh, pharmacokinetic uh, workings of this. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your national work and then also how you got started doing this work? Yeah, I'm a pharmacist by training. I got a master's in pharmacy, and when I was doing my master's, I taught pharmacology. So there's something of great interest to me. How do, how do these drugs work? It's fascinating. The interaction between the drug and the different parts, uh, you know, how they come, how they enter the body, what they do, and that was of great interest to me. And when this uh, company, uh, which was a division of Dupont, introduced these two medications, I was just incredibly attracted by that. For instance, naloxone was um, has been described as the most perfect drug ever developed in the history of medicine. You cannot think of any other medication that is that incredibly effective with virtually no side effects. And some people might know naloxone by another name, Narcan. Narcan. So Narcan was the brand name that um, we had. So Narcan was it. And interestingly, people were extremely skeptical that you could have a drug as, as dramatic as Narcan is. So it took us a while to convince the medical community that you have an antidote, a reversal agent that is second to none. It is nothing in medicine comes even close to what it does. And it's so specific. Every single opioid, whether it's a synthetic opioid, it's a natural opioid, will be reversed by Narcan. So that's how I really got into this field. And then, of course, we had the drug called naltrexone. We'll talk sometime later about it. It was used, it was developed as a medication to prevent people from relapsing. And this goes to show that a lot of times, you know, we say nothing has been has been done and the war on drugs has been pretty much maligned. But there were certain aspects of the war on drugs that have been overlooked. So these medications that, that came out, the naltrexone, the first non-addicting drug, non-opioid drug to treat addiction, should have been the precursor. They should have many other drugs that had followed. And everything came to a screeching halt there was this belief that somehow non-addicting drugs or non-opioid drugs have no place in treatment. And we are trying to change that. So I got involved with it. And then, of course, I was invited to be on, on, on national committees. I'm a national speaker for the drug courts, which is an amazing movement that instead of sending people to jail, jail does nothing to people, jail or prison. So instead of sending them to, instead of incarcerating these people, let us offer them meaningful treatment. It's not easy, and the treatment does help people. But again, there's a general misconception, uh, perception that somehow treatment is soft on crime. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. You know, my work as a social worker, um, I spent about eight years working with folks coming out of incarceration. And to, to your point, the public has this idea that if we arrest somebody and we put them away, that retribution, that, that, that you know, it's going to cause them to never commit that crime again. And what we, you know, I think of it this, this way, if substance use is a clinical issue, 
why are we trying to treat it in a justice space? And, and, and until we change our, our view on that, and I think some of what we want to talk about over the next few weeks, we're going to do this um, podcast twice uh, a month, um, but we want to really get into the, the bits and pieces and nuts and bolts of, you know, what is this work that we're doing. Um, a lot of what you say is about compassion, that, that yes, we have medications that can help people, but ultimately, you know, it's about that hug, that love, that seeing the person as a person. Um, do you want to speak a little bit about that? Right. I think, you know, what I say this is that uh, the one missing component in treatment is compassion. So we have done many things to addictive disorders. We have criminalized it, moralized it, stigmatized it, sometimes we would medicalized it. But once we are not done, we have not humanized it. Mm. You have to have you if you believe in human if you believe in humanizing something, then compassion is the other side of humanity. They go hand in hand. And we don't see that. Because all the time we are quick to denounce these people label them as really not fitting into society, uh, saying that the only treatment they deserve is punishment and things of that sort. And to me, that is very counterproductive. And as long as those feelings, those uh, perceptions persist, you are not going to make much progress with this. And I tell my, sometimes I tell my staff, I said, who is your competitor? And the main competitor is a drug dealer. What is it that you are, why is it that your patient is willing to go to the drug dealer and not come to you? Because the drug dealer is going to provide them relief from the withdrawal symptom by using the drugs. But if they come to me, why can't you do the same thing? We have done, we have made some amazing advances in the field of medicine. And you, you are telling me that we cannot effectively treat somebody's withdrawal symptoms? Give me a break. So the strength of ARCA was standardizing the treatment. I was very fortunate to meet to know some of the top researchers in the country. And the success is that if you walk in, it's just like you know, if you walk in with chest pains, you walk in with shortness of breath. The physician has a treatment algorithm what to do. They're not going to say, let me see what I can do and nothing. They have a treatment algorithm. Why can't we have the treatment algorithm to immediately address the withdrawal symptoms, stabilize them? That's the beginning of treatment, and that is what I call compassion and humanizing treatment. You encourage a, you know, demystifying of this. You just talked about it a little bit that there should be set standards of care. Um, would you say that the general public? Do you think that the general under, you know, general public, as we talk about, you know, unless you've been living in Iraq, um, most people understand that our country is facing an opioid, more specific, a fentanyl um, pandemic. Do you think that the general population understands how we're going to get through it or if we can overcome it? Not, not even, not even uh, remotely. They have no, and unfortunately, it's not just the general population. Even many of our policy experts, our political leaders, they don't seem to really understand this because often they listen to people who might give them a very different perspective. And one of the issues that I'm dealing with, what I call the treatment industrial complex, we are too many silos operating and each one 
is more focused on maintaining their own dominance and the status quo and rather than creating more interlinkage and seeing what can we learn from each other. We have to look at some of the amazing successes we had in battling the AIDS, HIV epidemic, successes we had in reducing smoking rates. Why can't we draw from them? Why can't we learn from them and say, okay, look at the way you mobilize support, you mobilize the medical community and, and, the, and the politician and the community in, in general to help fight the AIDS and HIV epidemic. Why can't we do the same thing here? It starts with saying, we are going to standardize the treatment. We are going to show, because the treatment of addiction is very, very low tech. It is not like, you know, you don't need MRIs, you don't need some sophisticated equipment. All you need is a healthy dose of compassion and a passion to help these people. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I see a lot of people that they're only... You know, most families have someone who's been impacted by substance, whether it be addiction, whether it be alcoholism, it doesn't really matter what that, that is. And some may even have a limited knowledge of 12-step recovery or things like that. And we know that all paths, if it's moving you towards a life where you don't have to have that offending drug, that's really the path we want to move towards. Since you started in this field, there's probably been a huge influx in funding. Do you think that we're closer to coming to an end? Or, or are we just, what's that look like? Because, you know, some people will look at the, the line item on a budget and they're going to see millions of dollars being spent on opioids. What's it going to get through this? To begin with, there's no doubt the funding is woefully inadequate. I'll give you the example of the funding that we got for the AIDS, HIV epidemic and for alcohol and drug addiction. It's, it's, there's, there's no comparison. Now, part of the reason is our own undoing. We have so adamantly said that really we just follow, want to follow the self-help group and different models. So we call it a disease, and yet the treatment is, we call it a chronic disease, and yet the treatment is episodic and decidedly non-medical. You know, it's shocking that less than 10% of the total population impacted by drugs and alcohol is, you know, is anywhere from 20 million to 23 million people. Less than 10% of these people get medications. I mean, to me, that's a national scandal. And yet people are so indifferent towards that. And if we had shown better outcomes, we had standardized the treatment, we had made demands for saying this has to be done, the funding would be there. But there is no advocacy for a group, like we saw the advocacy for, for um, HIV and AIDS. People said, we are dying and we need treatment now. We wanted it yesterday. We are not waiting for five years to have a drug approved. We want it now. Even if it shows some results, some, some, uh, some results, it will show some promise, we want it now. And look at the phenomenal progress you have made that in 35 years since the AIDS epidemic was first uh, diagnosed or was first, first encountered, we have over 25 medications to treat HIV and AIDS. And today, if you're positive for HIV, it's no more a, it's no more a death sentence. And how do we have enough play? We have five medications to treat 23 million people impacted by drugs. Can you think of a single other medical condition that has so few medications to treat a problem? You know, it makes me think as you talk about HIV first came on to the scene and and 
everybody was grappling with what is this new disease and, and it, who is it impacting. And a lot of nonprofit organizations sprung up, and it was really friends helping friends. Um, and so individuals who didn't have a voice, you know, a note that I just took on my hand because uh, listeners can't see that, but, you know, it's really the whitewashing of an epidemic, right? So, you know, I say all the time, especially when I'm speaking to students, that it's the white people started dying, right? So when when uh, overdose deaths were cordoned off to communities of color, heroin's not a new thing. It's changed, and and now we've seen that heroin deaths, opioid deaths, have pushed out into the suburbs and to more affluent communities. And so that, that systemic piece is one that, you know, I think really oftentimes, not always, doesn't get talked about. That's true because, again, um, you know, there's not only there's a gender stigma, but there's also a very strong element of racism that we have to accept the fact that there was, that is there and still it, it um, is there in uh, with the diagnosis, there in the treatment, this goes on. Now, for instance, if you read the history of heroin, it was supposed to be said, hey, it's something to do with the black community, okay? It's something endemic within there. Just let them do what they are doing. We don't need to really intervene. But that has been the case, you know. And uh, you can see this, uh, you can see it ironically. I was reading a, a paper, a clinical paper just a couple of days ago, that when, the, when we started glamorizing prescription opioids and said people have chronic pain, Prescribe it liberally because if a patient comes to you and says a chronic pain, give them what they want. And who are the ones who went? They're mostly the white folks. But if a person of African American African American origin went to the doctor, they would probably be denied it, saying you are a drug-seeking person. So the irony of it is that that the African American community was protected in some ways because of this you know, of this uh, inbuilt racism. Now you see the opposite happening. Now that heroin has bec become a street drug laced with uh, drugs like fentanyl, you see the community disproportionately affected by the addiction, and now the funding is not enough for them. So this is the irony of it. So when it, when it affects the white folks, it's, it's considered medicine is glamorized. You saw the same thing with cocaine. We glamorize cocaine saying that, oh, the addiction to cocaine is only psychological. There is no, there is no physical addiction. Now we know there is nothing like psychological and physical addiction. But when it became crack, all hell broke loose. Mm -hmm. So that has to end. So we have to offer, right now, you see a, a disproportionate number of African Americans dying from drug overdose. We see it in our own community here in, community here in St. Louis. And we have to mobilize the resources. Cocaine, if it was in powder form it was designer that was very studio 54 and it was very hollywood know, type kind of affluent in fact uh, but if it was in rock form then that was you know that's coming from the black community uh, and it was very uh, stigmatized and so you you talked about that earlier about stigma the stigma to seek treatment uh, and the stigma associated uh, you know, something near and dear to my heart is uh, individuals who have amphetamine use disorder. So right now we're seeing large amounts of money being pumped into opioids. But, you know, if you're from southwest Missouri and your primary disorder is centered around stimulants or amphetamines, although things are changing, I had a professor who used to say things are changing, but they're not changed. 
right? And it, you know, it, it's really hard. We have to play within, you know, what our funders want to pay for and, and what we're able to bill for. Uh, so it's really hard. Very much so, because you can see the other problem that is completely overlooked, and as a result, we see increased deaths occurring is alcoholism. Alcoholism got very much overshadowed by the opiate epidemic and other things happening, and we neglected it. So people who had an alcohol use disorder, they were reluctant to seek help because they didn't know what to do. And we just said, hey, since alcoholism is not an instantaneous death, if you, if you can't overdose on one shot of uh, alcohol, let's not worry about it. And now we are paying the price for it. So we have to see it globally because alcohol, a lot of people talk about marijuana being the gateway drug. I contend that the gateway drug is alcohol. And alcohol, once you take a down a few drinks, your inhibitions are gone, and then whatever is on the smorgas, whatever it is, amphetamines, fentanyl, cocaine, heroin, you'll take it. So we need to address the alcohol problem because that is the 800-pound gorilla we need to tackle. There's an acronym I use with clients that I'm working with is ABC, alcohol before crystal, alcohol before cocaine, and a lot of Great. things start at ABC. You know, I think one of the pivotal pieces that we have at ARCA, and I've heard you talk a lot about, is that behavioral health component. That we can give you medications that can help with this, the relieving the symptoms. But until we get to the root cause of why are you lonely? Why are you heartbroken? Why are you whatever? And so you've, you've focused on that and, and really getting to the root cause of what's causing that person pain or heartache. Because I tell people that drug addiction, addictive disorders have two components. It involves the mind and the brain. We are endowed with the mind that, you know, some people call it the, the frontal lobe, the executive function, the thinking brain. Some people call it the wizard brain. We are putting too much focus on just treating the brain and not the other issues. And that's very, very critical. But if they come to us, you heard me say this, we are treating Humpty Dumpty. They have not only issues with the drug addiction, but just with the brain, with the withdrawal symptoms and so on, but they have issues with depression, anxiety, marital issues, legal issues, you name it. You know. And if you don't address each of those issues, your work is going to be futile. It's just going to be not have any help with them. So, we, so, so again, what we did was, and I say this many times, we treat, just like homelessness cannot be treated by opening a soup kitchen and a shelter. You cannot treat addictive disorders by just giving them a pill that will temporarily control the withdrawal symptoms. And it falls into this very controversial uh, you know, realm called harm reduction. We need to do much more with these people, but we have to focus on the mind. Because the mind and the, and the brain are two, they are very intimately connected. We know that, you know, a war on drugs has really been a war on people. Um, and there's different strategies for how we get through it. All the strat strategies are partially correct. And all of the strategies are partially wrong, right? Because it's going to take a little bit of everything. And, and that's something that's always stood out as we've talked. And that, look, we have to have all hands on deck to, to address this, whether it be all medications. And then there's really a need from you know, the pharmaceutical industry, we need more medications. We need more tools that can help us to get through this. And, and fewer restrictions on those. Ah. 
that's an important one. And and so for the listeners, uh, can you talk a little bit about the uh, the DEA wavering process for a, a pharmacist or, or for a physician to prescribe the life-saving medications that we use? So we have exactly three medications, one, two, and three. Three medications to treat the opiate addiction. And look at, look at, if you look at each of these medications, look at the restrictions on them. Methadone was the first drug developed. Okay? Was the first drug approved by the FDA, but it has to be given in a clinic form. It is one of the most regulated medications we have. So patients have to stand in line each morning to take it, at least initially. If they show good compliance, they show that they're not using other drugs, they may get the privilege of getting a weekend dose and so on. Again, extremely restrictive. There is no other medication in this country that is given in those restrictions. The second that was developed was naltrexone. It turned out to be the exact opposite. It is the antithesis of methadone. And we won't go into the details of it. It never took off because uh, of lots of issues, mostly political issues. So then they say, let us come up with, since uh, come up with another drug that falls in the same category as methadone called OST, opiate substitution treatment. And that was called buprenorphine, better known by the brand name Suboxone. Now this should have been a major breakthrough to help people. But somehow, for some unknown reason, they place restrictions on that. Those restrictions have no place. We have a raging epidemic that is becoming a pandemic. It's an endemic thing. It's, I wouldn't say pandemic, but certainly endemic. Okay. There are some, but some countries it is. It's, endemic means if a drug, if, if an epidemic lasts for more than, I think, seven years, it's called endemic. And this has become endemic now. So you have to, so for, for, for a buprenorphine, a physician has to first take an eight-hour test. Then he or she has to apply to the DEA and, and obtain a waiver and the restrictions to how many patients they can see. Now they've they broadened it to nurse practitioners, physician, you know, physician assistant, and so on. But the result is that less than 5% of physicians have obtained the DEA waiver. So these, why do we put these restrictions? President Trump had an incredible opportunity when he declared, declared uh, an opioid, epidemic, uh, opioid emergency to at least temporarily remove these restrictions. It was enough. I don't know where it stands, but those are still in place and they are a major impediment, a major obstacle for getting people treatment. Now, of course, we also know that being an opioid is a double-edged sword. So using an opioid, when illegal opioids are raised, they are floating all over, it can inadvertently feed the opioid addiction. Something can be done. We can work out a way that that can that can reduce those uh, that uh, fear. But these restrictions are in place. There are people with some uh, special interest who do not want the change to occur. And here we are, forty to fifty thousand people a year dying. And if you look at the studies, I'm saying we will see this happen for the next eight to ten years. Can you imagine you are you are predicting such dire consequences? saying just, just accept the fact that for the next 10 years, you will lose another 500,000 people in the prime of their life and just deal with it. I mean, this is, that should be an unacceptable figure and there should be almost a national rage at this. It makes you think that if people had to line up every morning to get their cholesterol medication or 
they could only get a week's worth of medication. You know, and to give you a little perspective, if you're listening to this and you're saying, well, what's it hurt having a, a limit to a doctor's ability to prescribe? In an urban setting, it might not be problematic. There, there are many doctors, um, but if you go to a rural setting where you may only have one of these wavered physicians or nurse practitioners covering a hundred mile square area, it's very problematic and, and, and deadly to your point that you know, these medications should be able to be described, prescribed in an ER setting. Any, if you're able to prescribe um, and you've been through med school, you've been through all of the necessary things, you have the ability to, and, and some would argue, when you took that oath, you have an obligation to preserve life, thereby you need to prescribe these medications and learn about them. Absolutely. So a physician who has obtained the DEA license can prescribe anything under the sun, fentanyl, hydrocodone, oxycodone. There's no, no restrictions, except that if they have to prescribe buprenorphine, you have to live with these restrictions. It makes no sense. You know, it's, 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 it's real. And of course, the, the challenge we have is that we excoriated physicians for writing too much of opioids. Now we are telling them, don't hesitate, write plenty of buprenorphine. We have a problem that is raging, so do this. So all that has led to this um, complete confusion on the part of physicians. What do we do with it? So, so the reaction is, let me not mess with it. So most physicians are not interested in really addressing this issue. They'll say, rather just go away, go to some other place. And that indifference is killing people. And that's interesting. We... In, in looking at our topics for future episodes, we want to get into, you know, when you were talking about the medications, they work in different ways from a clinical standpoint, partial antagonist, antagonist. So in a future episode, we're going to talk about, you talked about the three drugs that's used to treat opioid addictions. We're going to go into, into that in detail. And, you know, I, I think it is important for people to understand what is happening. You know, with HIV, I can tell you that HIV medications work in interrupting five different points of the cycle. Uh, and so we want to we want to break down all aspects of this endemic. I, I like pandemic. I'm a bit more of a dramatic person. Uh, and so I like to use those buzzwords. Uh, Dr. Fred Rotnick, who is our medical director, and we're going to have him on and, and talking about um, some things. We really want to make this interesting. Uh, people need to wake up. This, this endemic, this pandemic, this, this crisis, we can all agree this public health crisis is not going away on its own. Really what it comes down to when you were talking about it is those 50,000 people that are dying, what value do they have? So, you know, if, if it was 50,000 bankers, we'd be doing something. If it was 50,000 school children, or school teachers, or ball players. I mean, all hell would have broken loose. Yep. And we know that all those folks, you know, the thing about alcoholism and substance use disorder is it is indiscriminate. We, we see folks every day, and I'm sure you do, from all various factors. And I am always amazed when I get someone in front of me for, for therapy. It started with a legal prescription. They had an injury. Like it, these stories are, you could put any name on them. And then, of course, we have folks that, yes, they, they've moved to street drugs. Why? 
because it's easier to get a hold of. So this tightening of restriction, I'd love to get your thoughts sometime on the VA. You know, the VA recently adopted the CDC's prescribing practices. And as a veteran myself, I mean, it's my belief that that pendulum is going to swing too far. Like, you can't go from having a really loose system to very tight and, and remove a pathway for, for opioids. That, I don't... Yeah, I think it's a very good issue. Now, you know, opioids are not new. We, we have used opioids for over 100, over 100 years. Why did this just become such a huge issue? And that, again, goes to the politics of it. We have known for the longest time that opioids are not appropriate for chronic pain. They have to be used only for a short time at the acute phase, after surgery, maybe after a short, um, you know, like a broken bone or something of that sort. And we were fine with it. So there were times that, you know, it was they were used a little more liberally and immediately tightened the screws. I won't go into the history of it, but in the 70s we saw this happen with all our, uh, many of our Hollywood folks like uh, Elizabeth Taylor and, and, Ed, and Elvis Presley getting addicted there, we put restrictions on them. This time, there was the people who created this new condition called chronic pain. And if you see that, it just went on from, well, 20 million, 40 million, 60 million, 100 million people have chronic pain. You cannot define what chronic pain is, but if they say I have chronic pain, give them the drug without any hesitation. And when you saw these inappropriate and I think irresponsible prescribing of these medications. Now, don't get me wrong, some people need that. So we let the pendulum swing to the to one extreme. Now we're going to the other extreme. That also is not appropriate. Some people definitely need it, but we have created such an environment of fear that we are painting everybody with it. The physician said, let me not take a chance. I will just not prescribe them. And you see people in writhing in pain and excruciating pain that need help. So that also has to end. I was listening to a, a uh, we recently joined the YMCA. And uh, so I was listening on the treadmill. I, you know, I don't really do New Year's resolutions, but uh, I could always stand and lose a little weight. So I was on the uh, elliptical machine and I was listening to a TED Talk. And the person who was uh, speaking uh, was talking about, you know, ADHD. Uh, if you looked... 20, 30 years ago, ADHD was a health condition that didn't exist. We created it. And it really goes to the point of, of course, we would all now agree ADHD, there are people that meet those criteria. And so to your point, chronic pain, there are folks, you know, fibromyalgia, um, you know, different, we call them invisible diseases where you can't see it on the outside. Um, but there has to be that discerning from physicians. I, I do think that Far too often, physicians have really been put in a tough spot where, you know, especially ER physicians, you're seeing a whole lot of patients. And sometimes I think it is far easier to treat that immediate need versus tell someone that, hey, you, what you need is behavioral health, not necessarily this pain medication. And we are... We are uh living in a culture where I need something immediately. I bat my eye twice, I need something for that. So how do you explain that the U.S. comprises just 4% of the world's population, just 4% of the world's population, and yet we utilize 90% of the world's narcotics? There's some kind of a disconnect there. That the amount of uh, hydrocodone used in this country is 90 metric tons. 
Mm. Staggering. So yes, we have to change a lot of the culture that happens. But it's not easy, but it cannot be done so drastically that uh, so many people are affected. So yeah, we need a major, major overhaul of the way we treat addictive disorders. You know, it is shocking that this is the, f I can, this is the only, I think, uh, advanced country we know of that has seen a decline in life expectancy for three years in a row. And they call it, you know, and, and, and most of the, contrib the contributing factors drugs and alcohol because it doesn't I mean this is shocking that for three years in a row it has led to a decline in life expectancy and this has to change and we are seeing people in their prime from 18 to 65 die so if you are losing these people in the in the prime of life can you imagine what the future looks for the country yeah and I, I encourage you know all of the listeners that you know it's easy to look at you can look at SAMHSA's website. You can look at all these great national websites, and we can give you numbers. I can tell you, you know, 125 people a die a day um, due to an overdose. Mm -hmm. I encourage you to go visit your your state Department of Mental Health website. Each year, they publish reports on the number of people who are getting treatment. And the one thing that stood out when you were talking about alcohol, it is the number one. Uh, substance that people seek treatment for. So I encourage listeners, check out your state, learn what your state's doing. There are a large number of efforts, you know, I, I, I don't want anybody to get the, the doom and gloom messaging. There's a lot of hard work that's being poured into, um, into solving what I, you know, from my vantage point, my family's lost three family members, both my parents were opioid users. Uh, I myself have a history of addiction. And so from my vantage point, everyone has been impacted. I have family members that have been in prison. I have it just runs the gamut. And this is really a, a human crisis. Because like you said, there, there are countries that are in a little bit better shape. But we're, for an advanced country, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. And we are supposed to be the leaders in the world. People look to us as a role model. Unfortunately, the one place you do not want to look at is the U.S. as a role model for treating drug, drug addiction. We have failed miserably. Any final words, Percy? Yeah, absolutely. They can always contact us because what, the more knowledgeable we get, the more educated we get, the more we are going to help people. We have no idea how one little suggestion, hey, have you gone to this website, have you listened to this podcast, could well save a life. That and that uh, is invaluable. What you have done, because people have said, I, I've seen highly educated people saying, I didn't know that alcohol is was treated, was treatable. That you can treat drug addiction. I had no idea. I just thought once you're a drug addict, you're gone. There's no hope for you. We need to change that uh, fatalism. So thank you for for my first talk. I, I'm looking forward to more of these down the line. At. Our next episode will focus on the three medications that are used to address opioid use disorder. Um, and we would invite you to listen along for that conversation. You can download this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Please share within your networks. And if there is a topic that you would like for us to cover, um, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Aaron Laxton.
That's A-A-R-O-N-L-A-X-T-O-N.